Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Happy Champagne Day. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. It's the podcast that's all about the cuisine that is said to have founded modern cooking. French ingredients and dishes have been the starting block for many of the world's best chefs and cooks. On Fabulously Delicious, you'll learn all about those dishes and ingredients, as well as get to know more about fabulous French chefs and foodies. I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Enchanté. Ten years ago, my life changed when I competed on MasterChef Australia, and now I'm living my best French life in the countryside, here in France, of course. Here, life is all about cooking, eating, meeting wonderful food producers, chefs, home cooks, drinking amazing wines, eating some of the over, would you believe there are 1,500 French cheeses, and sharing these fabulous experiences with you. I hope you're enjoying them. Today, it's International Champagne Day. Yes, that's right. The fourth Friday of October is celebrated around the world as International Champagne Day. And we are celebrating with two amazing people who are firmly in the world of all things champagne. On previous episodes, I brought you Carla Kirkpatrick, who is known for her appearance on the Real Housewife franchises on TV. But she is also known as the Champagne Dame, an important champagne to Australia. Carla will be feeling us in on all things champagne. And my other guest is the fabulous Cynthia Coutu. Cynthia runs tours of champagne and is an expert on all things women in champagne. So sit back, turn the volume up. If you're not driving, pour yourself a glass of wine, break a baguette, add a bit of saucisson maybe, some delicious cheese, and enjoy today's episode of Fabulously Delicious. Happy Champagne Day! about champagne can you name any other region in the world that has a history more fascinating more powerful connected with more interesting people than the region of champagne you know marie antoinette napoleon bonaparte the north Chandon family madame Clicquot, madame pommery madame lily bollinger name a region that had figures the connection to sir winston churchill and paul roger and you know there's nowhere in the world that's more fascinating than champagne the history is electric Pre-Napoleon Wars, Napoleon Wars, World War One, World War Two, Philoxera, um, the battle between their, the own, their own Champenois. Like, there's this fascinating tapestry of history. And when I finally get a minute to breathe, I'll bloody rush it, you know? But it is sensational, you know? And I'm a storyteller. I don't just turn up at a champagne tasting and serve you five glasses of champagne. No, no, no. I will take you out of where you are and back into time tell every detail of the coat he wore and the, the colour of his shirt and the pen that he wrote and what he was doing and, and, and you know the feeling and the sentiment, the history behind every house. And I will never, never, never tire of this business, this product, this region because of the rich history. It's wonderful. There's lots of different cities and towns in Champagne, but just quickly, what are the top your top five that people should visit? Well, I think that where Dom Perignon first started in the Abbey of Hautevier, um, the Hautevier town is very pretty. This is a region that was not affected by war. Thank goodness, touch wood. Um, it's a very beautiful town. I think that's a great place to start. The little village of Ayi. Um, really the centre of winemaking, even before Dom Perrin's time in, in 1500s and 1600s. Um, but I also encourage people to sort of get, you know, Epinay is important, Harms is important, um, but get out. Most people stay in the main tourist towns. Um, you know, have a glass of champagne, pluck up some courage, get on the wrong side of the road and just hit the road, you know. Get out to all those beautiful regions. 
The sad thing is, some of the most beautiful parts of Champagne are actually deep, deep down in the south, in the Cote de Bar, in the Orb. Um, you know, some of the most beautiful villages are really, truly down in the south. They're actually closer to Burgundy than they are to the heart of Champagne, but most tourists never see it. It's, it's really quite sad. That's really where the picturesque parts of Champagne are. So onto the drink itself, just for somebody that's out there that has no idea what we're talking about, although I don't think there anybody there is anybody, but what is Champagne? So Champagne, first and foremost, is a region. So Champagne with a capital C is a place. It's a region in France. It's 34,500 hectares of some of the most expensive uh, land in the world. Um, champagne is a wine, um, small C, is a wine that's been fermented once to turn the grapes into a still wine and for the second time fermented inside the bottle. So you've got a bubbly, sparkling wine made to very exacting standards. It's aged for a certain period of time. It's made with certain grapes. Um, Champagne is considered to be the most superior sparkling wine on the planet. And there's reasons for that. Part of it is geology, you know, where it sits in the world. Part of it is the human hand, how talented the generations of winemakers are. Um, and truly, it's a gift, you know, the, the position in the world, the geology, the human hand, the history, all comes together to make some of the most exquisite sparkling wine in the world. Do they use red or white grapes for champagne? So traditionally, we have three grapes that are grown within the Champagne region. We have a white grape, exactly as you know it, in a still white wine, and that grape is Chardonnay. And then what surprises people is that we actually have two red grapes that are grown within the Champagne region. Pinot Noir, red grape, exactly as you know it is a still red wine. And the, the other red grape, which is lesser known, is called Meuniere. And Meuniere, when you translate from French to English, translates to vanilla. So the miller works with flour. And the reason that that grape has that name is that the, the leaf of the grape has a flowery white coating. Um, so we have Chardonnay, we have Pinot Noir, and we have Meuniere. What the winemaker does is he cuts them off the, off the vine by hand because if he breaks the skin accidentally through machine or rough handling, he can bleed the colour of the skin into the grape and we don't want that. The grapes are transported um, very quickly to the pressing centre, Chardonnay on its own, Pinot Noir on its own and Meunier on its own. They're gently pressed, the skin of the grape is broken, we take out the white flesh, the flesh of the grape is always white, we discard the skin and then we ferment the Chardonnay, the Pinot Noir, and the Meunier separately, turning them into white wines, even though they're from red grapes. Right. Okay, that's really interesting. So there's two red grapes in there. So how do they then make rosé champagne? Because I've seen that before. So it's like pink champagne. Is How do they make that? So the, the most common way of making rosé champagne is that for the first time they will take the Pinot Noir grape out of the vineyard, they break the skin, and for the first time they let the skin, which contains colour and tannin and aroma macerate, they let it tango with the white flesh which is inside the grape. So for a period of time, they're leaching out the colour from the skin into the white fleshy juice. That could be anywhere from 36 to 72 hours, essentially making a light red Pinot Noir style of wine. Now you've got a red wine and we've got a white wine base, just as we do in a white champagne. The technique is called assemblage. Everything sounds better in French, even me. I'm Tyler and I'm a killer. Crime. <laughs> oh, I can handle being a killer, a man killer. And um, we assemble. <laughs> and then we assemble the red wine and white wine together to make rose. And it's totally up to the winemaker how deep or how light you'd like your rose style to be. You have a house like Vilcar Samon, one of the pioneers of rose champagne in the region, who makes a really light and um, fresh rose style. Really, they say that rose is about texture and depth and aroma it's not about the pinkness of the wine um, and then you have other houses like Runau for example who, who make a really intense rosé style so it's very much up to the winemaker. Sugar is used in that fermented fermentation I can't say the word. Fermentation. Fermentation process. There you go, Andrew. Sugar is, I lose my English whilst learning French. Um, well, that's my excuse anyway. Um, sugar is used in that fermentation process to make champagne. So does that mean that there's, that there's sweet, like it's a sweet wine or is it like you get dry champagnes, don't you? So are there drier and sweeter versions? 100%. We've got two places where we add sugar. One place where we add sugar, which is for technical reasons, so we take the grape off the vine. 
grapes naturally have sugar. Anything, any fruit, any grain, anything that naturally contains sugar can be fermented. Because the real way winemaker is not the winemaker, it's yeast. So if you add sugar and yeast together, the yeast eat sugar and trigger this quite violent process called fermentation. And it's really quite rambunctious, it gets hot, it bubbles and toils, and over a period of time it turns into alcohol. So the level of sugar in a grape or in any fruit um, equates to how much alcoholic content you have. So in the first fermentation, we've got a grape, we crush it, got some grape juice in there, natural sugars, and the, the yeast eat those and they turn it into a white wine. At this point, there's no sugar left. So when we put our white wine into the bottle to, to, to trigger the second fermentation, we need to add more sugar. So we now add another dose of sugar and another dose of yeast. And just a little technical point, all champagnes are made to a certain bar of pressure. And that bar of pressure is six bars. To get to six bars, we need to add four grams of sugar per bar of pressure. So 24 grams of sugar goes in, a little bit of yeast, and we put a lid on it and down it goes into the cellar to undergo secondary fermentation inside the bottle. So at this stage, the yeast eats all the sugar and the wine is completely dry. We've got to take that yeast out because it's like little breadcrumbs, okay? So the riddling process begins. We roll the bottle from side to side, side to side, all the way inching it up onto its neck to plant on the tip of its, uh, of its neck with all the yeast in the bottom of the neck. We freeze it, we open the bottle, it shoots out this little pellet of frozen liquid and yeast and to top up the liquid that's been lost, we inject a little more liquid, but at this point, we can add sugar purely for taste. Because Champagne as a region is actually, a, it's a cool climate region. Champagne as a latitude is quite north. You know, it's quite, quite northerly region, it's a very cool climate region. Now, of course, we've got global warming and it's getting warmer every year, but really, it's cool. So you have grapes that come off the vine that are high in acidity and low in sugar. So a little bit of sugar is added at this point purely to balance acidity, purely for flavour, and this is called a dosage. And the dosage, in terms of grams of sugar per litre at this point, determines the style of the champagne. We are tending more and more to extra brut, extra dry champagnes, or brut, which means a dry champagne. Um, so extra brut is anywhere up to you know six grams per litre of added sugar, and a brut is six to 12 grams of, of sugar per litre. And that's the final part of influence that the winemaker has, is that tiny last little addition of sugar. What's the origin story of champagne? So in the Champagne region previously, really the heart of the Champagne region was a region called Ayi, A-Y-I-E. Um, they made red wines, they made Pinot Noir, still red wines. And it wasn't until we had a young Dominican monk by the name of Dom Pierre Perignon. And Dom Pierre, of course, like many monks in his time, would be responsible for making wine. And wine was used in religious ceremony, it was used to serve the monks for lunch, it was used to, to serve to lonely travellers. But Dom Pierre Perignon in the Hauteville Abbey of Champagne had an issue with his wines. This is the late 1500s, okay, actually probably more 1600s. It started to sparkle, you know, it started to bubble. And then, of course, the glass wasn't as strong as it was now. And, of course, when you've got a little bit of pressure occurring naturally in the bottles, the bottles were exploding. And they were setting off this wild chain reaction in the cellars and all the bottles were exploding. So Don Perignon thought, gosh, I think my wines are possessed. So they were, you know, really trying to figure out how to get the bubbles out of champagne. And look, I worked with John Perignon for a long period of time. And honestly, you know, the story may have been told a little differently whilst I was working with John Perignon, but really the, the bubbles were a nuisance. They weren't intentional. But at some point in time, John Perignon said, okay, this is the secondary. So what had happened was the, the winemaker put yeast in the bottle. He was fermenting his wine and, you know, the cycles would roll around and, um, you know, really what was happening was the, the, the region was so cool in Champagne, the yeast hadn't finished it, finished doing its job. You know, yeast needs a certain temperature to ferment. There's natural cycles. And because of the onset of winter so quickly in Champagne, the yeast had gone into sleep, got become dormant, and spring rolls around, the yeast to wake up and they go, oh, haven't eaten all the sugar yet. Quick, 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 let's finish our job. But then it's creating this carbonation inside the bottle. The bottles are exploding and setting off these wild chain reactions. 
it was indeed John Perignon who was the godfather of champagne because he discovered, well, you know, what if I add more yeast into the bottle? Can I capture this bubble? But then I'm going to mix on the glass. So let's get that from England because I heard they're growing beer. And then the corks are shooting out. So let's try and you see, trying to catch the, the cork on the end. So it was a process of creation and mastery. And that's really where sparkling wine began. But it was illegal to transport sparkling wine in those days, you know, so it was dangerous. And it wasn't until one of the kings of France changed the laws and allowed the transportation of champagne that the industry began. And alas, we have uh, Henri Runart coming to the party and launching the first champagne house of all time. There's champagne houses. Now, what's meant by that term? Mm-hmm. You have different classifications. You know, and back in the day, what happened was you had a champagne house who made the champagne. And you had a grower who grew the fruit and sold their fruit to the house. They often didn't do both. Okay, so they were very distinct. The houses would make the champagne and buy the fruit off the growers, and then the growers wouldn't make the wine. They just sold their grapes to the, the big houses. And in the 1900s, around sort of 1910, the houses became very big and very powerful because they're making a lot of money, and the growers weren't really making much at all. And then the houses went out and hired these men called commissionaries who were, you know, they were paid and rewarded according to how cheap they could get the grapes off these growers. But they started to use tactics like intimidation and bullying and bribery. And if that all, and if all else fails, they were buying grapes from the Loire Valley and other parts of France and even Spain and Portugal. So it became a real mess. Um, and in actual fact, the greatest war of all that happened in the Champagne region is never spoken about, and it's the war where the growers turned on the Champagne houses. It was a violent, bloody battle that took place for two years. And the French government had to step in and set standards and boundaries and said, okay, stop everybody. I'm going to set a price per kilo for grapes. If you're in this region, this region, and this region, you get this price. And if you're here, here, and here, you get this price. And this is how the Echelle de Crew rating system was developed. Grand Cru regions were classified, Premier Cru regions, and other crew. And if you were in the Grand Cru, you got 100% of dollar value of euro value of the grape. And if you're Premier Cru, you got between 80 and 99% or 80 and 90%, and then other crew was below that. So there was this sort of classification system um, that was put in place by the government. And that's when the region was very tightly defined. You weren't allowed to grow or buy grapes from anywhere outside of the Champagne region. Um, so then there was a big divide between the growers and the houses, and that's when the grower revolution started because these growers are like, well, you know what? I don't want to sell my grapes to those houses anymore. I'm now going to make my own wine, put my own family name on the bottle, and so begins the revolution of a grower champagne, which we love. Wow, I didn't know any of this. This is this is what's fabulous about fabulously delicious. We get to hear experts speak on things that they're passionate and know a lot about like yourself now something that you might be able to clear up for me as well is about sparkling wines so champagne is essentially a sparkling wine that comes from champagne but if it's made somewhere else we can't call it champagne what's that about yeah this has been a a long-running um highly contentious um, topic. I mean, Champagne was one of the first to really stamp its mark as an AOC or a classified area. Um, if you look at the composition of the Champagne Committee, so you've got the CIVC Committee of Professionals, Vendre de Champagne. They are the body that protects um, Champagne. You know, they have scientists, they have marketing team, but really mostly they're lawyers. <laughs> they're defending the brand of Champagne, I can assure you. I mean, they do, they, they truly, they have scientists, they have people within there looking at climate change, they have people looking at what yeast is used. I mean, they're really they're the champagne police. They go into the cellars and go, well, have you really been aging for, for a minimum of 18 months and are you using the right yeast? I mean, have you met minimum requirements? I mean, you can't just go and plant a vine in the champagne region if you own land there. You know, just because you're in champagne doesn't mean you can make champagne. If your vines already were part of the designated maps, then forget about it. Um, so there's a very strict classification which sets a certain standard for the quality of champagne. And if you meet those standards and you're within that boundary, then you can put champagne on your label. 
Um, they set out and they received global trademark classifications. The only country that really flaunts that uh, is America. There was a certain piece of American legislation that said that if you were using champagne on your label pre sort of 1970 or something along those lines, then you were allowed to keep it. But much to the uh, the chagrin, the, the sort of contentious um, nature of the CIBC, they're not happy with that rule, I and mean, there's a lot of litigation that goes on around the world. In fact, the CIBC even litigated against people within Champagne for using the word Champagne. So then, does that mean that there's other sparkling wines in other regions of France? 100%. I mean, you've got um, Nimu, for example, fantastic um, sparkling wine region, and, and in actual fact, you know, many people talk about Dom Perignon being first, but um, and, and actually, I can correct myself, John Perignon was late 1600s, so Limu was sort of mid-1500s in terms of their months as producing sparkling wine. Did they know? Did John Perignon? John Perignon know? I mean, there were no email and no mail and uh, no World Wide Web at that point, so did he know that there were months in Limu uh, making sparkling wine? Who knows? Um, but yes, there are. There are wonderful examples of sparkling wine, but there's a certain type of topography and geography and climate that just makes champagne perfect for making sparkling wine and um, it's very hard to replicate those conditions anywhere in the world. I mean, for goodness sake, I'm off to Tasmania next week and um, there's actually a really strong relationship between Tasmania and some of the winemakers in France and often when the Champenois come to Australia, they do go to Tasmania and spend time with our sparkling wine producers. So there's a lot of share of knowledge and share of know-how, but you can't replicate the climate of the Champagne region. Emily in Paris, it's taken the world by storm. Everybody loves it or hates it, one of the two. But, of course, there's this champagne house that they come up with the idea for marketing that we're just going to splash the champ buy the bottle to splash the champagne over everybody. I mean, seriously, is, to people, is there really a champagne that they're doing that? Um, the answer is yes. And so can I tell you, oh, when, really? I, when I first watched that show, and I'm not going to tell you all my secrets, but when I first moved to Paris, my life was way more exciting than Emily in Paris. I watched it the first time and I'm like, oh, 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 boring. And my friends were like, give her a chance, give her a chance, give her a chance. I was like, girlfriend, give her a chance. Um, because, oh my God, how much do I tell? Well, I met someone very famous when I first moved to Paris and, um, and my life was, very extravagant, and I met a Sadie Arabian prince, and I dated him for a while, and I dated a guy who owned a big nightclub, and um, my life is very extravagant. You know, when I look back now from the parties I went to and from the people I met and you know, what I wore, and I, I am definitely Emily in Paris. That was my life. Um, and someday I will write the book, but I won't do it until I finish presenting because it was very colourful and very extravagant. Um, Yes, there are, and even when I was dating the prince, actually, you know, when we were in nightclubs, um, and he would buy, and one of my, my friend, one friend in particular, he'd go, oh, can I be a bill tourist, can I be a bill tourist, and he'd look at the bill at the end of the night, and we're talking 30,000, 40,000 euros a night, um, it's a lot of money, and like, he was buying these champagnes that you could never replace, and we're in the nightclubs, and everyone's sort of spraying it, and I'm like, no! Oh, stop. <laughs> I sort of down low, swilling and sniffing and trying to take it slow. And I'm like, my God, you can't ever see this again. Like, this champagne will never be replaced. Um, so, yes, and you know, bless him, but I've got a friend um, in the Cayman Islands and he's opening a big nightclub at the moment and I'm helping him with the champagne list. And he's like, you know, I put drains in the floor and, you know, we're just going to buy champagne to spray everywhere. Um, so <laughs> we're, not gonna, we're not actually going to drink <laughs> We're not actually going to drink it. And, you know, I had a friend of mine who got back from Vail last week. Actually, I saw this customer today. He's a very successful man in Melbourne, and I hand-deliver his champagne. Is that, is that important? And um, he said, oh, there's this bar in, in Vail where, you know, you kind of ring this bell. So the person who buys the most champagne in the bar and sprays it everywhere, they don't drink it, you know, you get to ring this bell. So... It's true. Champagne is going to waste, people. Carla, it's been fabulous talking to you. Finally, the question I ask everybody on Fabulously Delicious, and that is, what's the most fabulous thing about France to you? Can mm, I say the men? Um, no, let's say the food. No, I mean, for me, it's France. I, I love the way the French live. The French live in a way where you 
um, you know, you work to live, you don't live to work. We, we have it the opposite way around in Australia. The French people take time, they take pleasure. Everything's slow, everything's enjoyed, everything's intentional, and we just don't do that in other countries. And there's a certain passion that goes into everything they do, and I love that. Fabulously Delicious is a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Some of my favourite fabulous shows on the Evergreen Network are the French History Podcast, where Dr. Gary Giraud explores events and people from 3 million years ago to the present day in France. Gary Giraud is a historian who has a PhD in modern British and French history. And another great podcast about French history on the Evergreen Network is Le Secle by David Montgomery. It's all about France's history from 1814 to 1914. That's the century in France that was both full of turmoil and stagnation, revolution and industrialization, wealth and poverty, colonialism and even humiliation. The Seclay podcast is on Evergreen Podcast. You can check out both Fabulously Delicious, Seclay and the French History Podcast on evergreenpodcast.com. Cynthia Kutu, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Now, did I get your pronunciation of your name right then? It was the closest possible. (laughs) (laughs) It's French-Canadian, is that right? Yes, it is. Right, okay. All right, well, we'll see. I'll I'll hopefully get it right throughout the recording of this. Right now, are there many champagne houses and brands that are run by women? So it's really hard to get official statistics. Um, because the French um, government doesn't allow collecting gender data. And the last survey done was in 2010, and it was for all wineries in France, and 27% were owned by women, okay? But that doesn't tell you what they do, okay? Your name can be on the ownership piece of paper, but it doesn't um, describe your role. And I contacted all the the trade union of the champagne houses, the trade union of the growers, and um, no one could give me any numbers. But what I did is um, the trade union for the houses. There's about uh, 320 or 340 champagne houses. So a house is when they buy most of their grapes from growers because they don't have enough of their own, okay? So that's what defines a champagne house. Um, When you look on the back of a bottle, um, every company has a number. And in front of that number, there are two initials. And a champagne house um, has the initials NM, négociant. Manipulant. It means that they negotiate, they buy the grapes and then manipulate them. A grower champagne, for example, um, will have the initials RM, récoltant manipulant. It means that they harvest their own grapes and manipulate them. And there's about 4,500 grower grower producers, so I don't know them all. And then you have co-ops. and that the initials are CM, and there's about 120 um, co-ops. Okay, so there's three main producers. A fourth type, also buyers brand, like you know, like when rock stars or movie stars, they don't grow the grapes, they don't make the champagne, they just slap their brand on it, and that will say MA for Marc Acheteur. Okay, so so getting back to the um, there's a trade union for the growers and a trade union for the houses. Okay, and um, on their website they have the names of the president, the director, the cellar masters, um, and there's a there's about uh, on the website there's about a hundred names. Okay, so it's a small sample, but I went through all of them and identified which ones were men and which ones were women. And I can say that um, 18% of the houses have 
a female cellar master. Okay? And 28% of the houses have a woman on their executive board. So either as the president or director, or CEO, um, so on. So that's still, there's a, what I call a glass champagne bottle ceiling in terms of the, uh, the women. And there are some that are also, it's in where you need more is in the decision-making roles in the trade unions, for example. Um, there, there aren't that many uh, women at that level. Um, but it, it takes at least a generation for seller masters to change. You know, like usually when you're, you, you work as a seller master, you stay for a long time. So you have to wait. <laughs> you have to wait. But there are more and more women that are graduating um, from uh, enology schools um, more than 50% of the graduates are women. What is a cellar master? So that, for those of us that don't know. Uh, so it depends on the size of the house. Sometimes they can be just responsible for what happens in the cellars. If it's a big house, you've got someone in charge of the vineyards. So you've got, in a sense, a director of the vineyards, a director of the cellars. And the director of the cellars is the cellar master and they um, decide uh, well I mean their main function is the blending of the different wines like champagnes made uh, in in two stages so to speak well two fermentations and um, the first fermentation takes place right after um, harvest and the second uh, fermentation, so, you know, this year harvest is in, uh, it's, it's just started in the south of, uh, south of Champagne. Um, and by law in Champagne, like they've got a, a rule book about this thick, you can't see on the screen, but it's, it's a lot of rules and regulations. And you're not allowed to start blending until January 1st, okay? because they want to make sure that you know what your grapes had in them in terms of aromas and flavors and to see how that base wine that you made with the first fermentation, how it turns out. Okay. And so the cellar master is in charge of deciding, tasting all the different wines from all the different grape varieties from the subregions. Um, you know, you can have up to 70 different, uh, wines uh, to taste for your for your blending phase and then deciding okay were the grapes good enough to make a vintage um, and then they'll set aside some of the, the 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 wines to make a vintage champagne and then the non-vintage or multi-vintage uh, blends and then to set aside some uh, reserve wine for the following years and so they they're the ones who do all the blending, the smelling, the tasting, um, this, you know, like, are we going to um, age, uh, vinify in oak, in stainless steel? How long are we going to leave the bottles down there to age after the, the blending? And so they, they're, the, they're like the cooks, so to speak, uh, in the cellars. Um, this is going to be a hard one, I'm sure, but uh, I do want to see if you can narrow it down to just one. But is there somebody that is, uh, you know, that you'd like to highlight that's in working in Champagne, whether they're a cellar master or they're the owner or, or president of a, of a house, uh, that's a woman that's doing fantastic things and why? So I don't think I would narrow it to one person, one woman. There are two associations that I really respect. One is called uh, La Transmission, the transmission. And it was created by two women who really struggled as women in Champagne. Uh, one is the former CEO of Krug Champagne, Maggie Enriquez, and Anne Malassang, who is co-owner of Champagne AR Le Noble. And they got uh, nine women together from different subregions, different roles. You know, so you have cellar masters, you have 
in charge of sales, you have uh, growers. And so different ages, different subregions, different roles, and they get together um, on a regular basis to support each other. And every six months or so, they do workshops to share their knowledge with uh, wine professionals. And so you've got uh, Vitaly Tétinger, who's the new CEO of Tétinger Champagne. Uh, you've got Mélanie Tarlan uh, from Tarlan. She's a grower. Uh, Charlene Drapier from Drapier. And so they're a fabulous group of women who get together to support each other and to share their knowledge with champagne lovers. So that's one association. Another one is called Les Fabuleuses, uh, which is a, a word game instead of because uh, bull means bubbles. Uh, so fab bubbles, fabulous bubbles. Oui, we like this. <laughs> and they're seven growers uh, who get together and they actually made, so they each make their own champagne, but they made a blend using juice from each of the seven growers. And to me, that's ultimate collaboration. Um, so yeah. And what's that called? Les Fabuleuses. Uh, they're we need to get them to be a sponsor of Fabulously Delicious, I think. <laughs> the name says it all. Is this different to other wine areas and regions of France, the collaboration of women and the idea of women in France? I mean, in Lyon with food, you know, it's very well known, the Mer de Lyonnaise uh, for food. But is this specific to Champagne, the women of Champagne, or is this uh, all throughout other wine industries in France? I have... I've noticed that most wine regions have uh, an association of female winemakers. Like there's Femme de Bourgogne. Uh, each, each region pretty much has uh, an association of uh, female winemakers because they, they need to support <laughs> each other, basically. Do you think that women bring innovation to the champagne industry? Historically, they certainly have. I don't know yeah. if that's your segue to uh, go into the... Uh, <laughs> oh, well, it wasn't, but we can touch on that. That's not a problem at all. What, what have women done that historically has changed the champagne industry? So during um, the 18th century, it was a hit and miss, okay, because they, they didn't understand the science, uh, like the role of yeast. Um, and, and during the 18th century, it was mostly the courtesans at court who played, they were like the, the first champagne ambassadors, you know, and only 3% of the wines made in champagne in the 18th century had bubbles. Okay. So um, it was the, uh, the favorite, the um, headmistress of the king who insisted on serving champagne at all the dinners and the parties. So, they, they played an important role as the first champagne ambassadors. But during the 19th century, when Pasteur came along and industrialization, you went from 10 champagne houses in the 18th century to 300. Okay? And that's when you had most of the innovations. Okay? And um, Veuve Clicquot, of course, the most famous widow, um, she was responsible, I'd say, for three main innovations. One is um, a vintage champagne. There was a Halley's Comet during harvest in, I can't remember if it was 1810 or 1811. And it's a good omen to have a comet during uh, harvest, whether you're a grape uh, grower or a potato grower. And so she decided to market a champagne only using the grapes from the comet harvest. Yeah. So um, another is the riddling table. Uh, the myth is that, uh, so a, to riddle is to twist the bottles to eventually end up with all the yeast in the neck of the bottle to be able to remove the yeast so that you don't have cloudy champagne, basically. And... Uh, she felt that the riddling was getting uh, slowing down the production process. And she was like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And she was in France. And so her team said, no, mais non, madame, no. And she came up with the idea of taking the kitchen table, drilling holes in it, and then putting the neck of the bottle 
in the holes to be able to riddle the bottles quicker and uh, going from horizontal to vertical position. So she invented, she kept that a secret because there was so much competition between the champagne houses. She got her team to swore to secrecy. And then the um, other innovation is what's called blended rosé. Um, so up until Mad- Madame Clicquot um, used to make pink champagne by using red grapes and letting the juice macerate for a short amount of time between the white juice and the red skin color in the skin bleeds into the white juice and makes it pink. Okay, But it's a tricky way of making pink champagne because if you fall asleep on the job, you end up with red wine. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. So she was like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And she came up with the idea of making white wines from white grapes and red grapes. Because if you take a white grape and a red grape and you press them gently, they both produce white juice. Okay. So she continued to make white wines from white grapes and red grapes. And then in parallel, she made red wine. And at the blending phase, she blended white wine and red wine to make it pink. Okay, And that's called a blended rosé. And um, I'd say today, maybe 85 to 90% of the rosé champagne on the market use that method. And um, uh, so those are three important innovations. Um, about a couple of years later, uh, Madame Pommery, who was also a widow, um, she up until Madame Pommery, champagne was um, mostly served for dessert. And uh, the Russians used to like drinking it on the rocks. And at the dosage phase, there was like 150 to 200 grams of sugar added. And so it was very, very sweet. And Madame Pommery wanted to develop and target the English market. And they preferred drier um, alcohol in general. And so she decided to make a dry champagne. And her, um, there were a couple of people experimenting with the concept, but she was the first to have a commercial success. And um, it was called Brut because a lot of people found it was brutal to have such a dry champagne. Um, You know, she, her team, again, told her this is crazy. No one's going to drink dry champagne. And she said, we're going to leave the grapes longer on the vine so that they have more natural sugar. And we're going to age the bottles longer in the cellar so that we don't need to add as much sugar. And so it was because of Madame Pomery that, Champagne moved from being a super sweet dessert champagne to more of an aperitif uh, champagne before the meal. So right there, you've got four innovations, uh, two women that, um, you know, that are really important. It is often in the past that the widow would take on the reins from their husbands uh, and that's to run the houses uh, in that day. But there were um, people that started, women that started from scratch, right, back in those days? Nope. No? A single single woman. A single woman, right. Was not allowed to have her own bank account or her own business. Ah. And so only widows were allowed to do business. But I did read somewhere, um, and this is where my question was coming from, I, I read that there was a widow that set up the, her own house rather than inventing, uh, like, sorry, she set up her own house rather than taking over the reins of her husband. Yes, but she had to be a widow. She had to be a widow. So you yeah. couldn't be a single lady doing it. Beyonce no. couldn't have done it before no. she got married. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yes, I yeah I posted about her. It was um, Madame Henriot, um, who her husband didn't have a, a champagne house, but when he died, because she became a widow, she could create her own business. Which so all the other widows like Veuve Clicquot, Pommery, Laurent Perrier, 
their husbands had champagne houses that the widows took over after their husbands died. And they really grew the businesses. Um, but Madame Henriot is an exception that she didn't take over her husband's. She waited for him to die and then she created her right. own. <laughs> I also read on your Instagram, actually, uh, which is a fabulous Instagram account, uh, can I just say, about the magnum effect. What is this? Okay. Um, so uh, on, if you read my post, I said magnum effect doesn't mean the wow factor because of the size of the bottle. Um, if you have a, a regular standard size bottle beside a magnum bottle, okay, the magnum is twice the size, but if you look up at the top, um, it's the same amount of air between uh, the top of the bottle and in the neck, okay? And so when the bottles are aging in the cellars, you have the contact between the wine, the yeast, and the oxygen, the air in the bottle, okay? And the ratio is ideal in a magnum versus a standard bottle, okay? The, the ratio between the, the air, the yeast, the wine, and the magnum, and it usually it takes longer to age, but it's slower, and it... Um, I did a master class. I can't remember which with which cellar master, but he basically served us. I think we were 50 wine professionals in the room, 48 men and two women sitting at the back. And um, it was the exact same blend age for the like everything was the same. One glass was from a standard bottle and the other from uh, the Magnum. And it was to smell and taste the difference between the two. And there was a difference, okay? So usually what I, I, I tell my followers or my whoever participates in my uh, workshops in Paris, um, that if you're, if you're having a party uh, and you know you're going to be serving uh, several champagne bottles, it's better quality to serve one Magnum versus two standard bottles. How long should we actually keep champagne bottles? So champagne is different than other wines in the sense that all the aging is done for you in the cellars. So when you buy, when you buy a bottle, you're meant to drink it right away. The rule of thumb is uh, you should drink it within two or three years of it being disgorged. Cellar masters will tell you that um, you can keep a bottle for the same number of years that it's spent in the cellar, okay? So if it's spent three years aging in the cellar, then you should drink it three years after it's been disgorged. If it's spent 10 years, uh, like if it's a Comte de Champagne from Titinger that spends 12 years in the cellar, then you could uh, keep it for 12 years. And the risk of keeping it too long is that you lose the bubbles. What about the French? Do they recognise the role that women have played in the champagne industry? Do they celebrate it? Uh, not really. Really? <laughs> um, I, the, I find that a lot of the, the growers and the houses are very insular. They know a lot about their own history and their own way of making champagne, but they don't necessarily have the big picture. Um, like for example, I'm amazed at um, how many people in Champagne still think that Don Perignon uh, invented bubbles. Uh, he he never made sparkling wine. Um, and so, so, who invented bubbles? It's a team effort over 200 years. Um, but that's a whole separate podcast. All right, we'll go into that another time. We'll have to get you back. Before I get to my last question, I did want to ask you, so you mentioned uh, a couple of times now that you've got a teenage daughter. Do you think that she recognises and understands the importance of, you know, what you're doing, highlighting the women of Champagne? Um, well, you know, the relationships between <laughs> teenage daughters and their mothers can be tricky sometimes. Um, she's gone through different phases where she's like, I don't want to hear another word about champagne. But 
she is now at the stage where she drinks champagne and impresses her friends with her knowledge. Uh, so I think she's at the stage now where she's like, ah, my mom knows a lot about champagne. And um, yes, like when she, I, um, I've been uh, interviewed on on TV and in the New York times and, and things like that. And so she sees that I get recognition for uh, what I've created. And so she, she is proud of her mama. You take many people, as you've mentioned, to Champagne on tours. Where would be the one place that you would recommend that people must go to when they visit Champagne? <laughs> I mean, <sighs> I'm going to narrow it down because you gave me three, four options for the last time I said one thing. So I'm going to say <laughs> yeah, no. just one because people have to come on your tours to do yeah. the other things. So I just want one. So um, in 2015, the hillsides, houses and cellars were inscribed on world uh, UNESCO's World Heritage List. Okay. So, I mean, I'm Canadian. I love nature. And so... I would have a preference for the growers in the hillsides where you, you get to meet the person who grew the grapes, who made the champagne and drink their champagne with them with the view of the vineyards. Um, Fabulous. Uh, most people, though, what they do is they go to Reims or Epernay and visit the cellars of a big champagne house like Berfricot or Moët Chandon. But... You, you see the bling bling, the Disneyland side of Champagne when, when you do that. Olivia, thank you for joining us on Fabulously Delicious. So I've got one final question for you, and that is the question I ask everybody that's been on the show. What is to you the most fabulous thing about France? Uh, the fact that you can never get enough of it um, in the sense that you know there's always a new restaurant a new dish a new wine a new you can never feel that you know it all in terms of food and wine no that's a great answer and i think that uh, our listeners are never going to be able to get enough of you i think that uh, it's been a fabulous chat That's it for another episode of Season 3 of Fabulously Delicious. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you'd like to get to know more about our guests on today's podcast, Cynthia and Kyla, then check out the full episodes for when they were on Fabulously Delicious on previous seasons. I'll put the links in the show notes for you. Thank you for listening, and remember, you know what my motto is? Whatever you do, do it fabulously. Merci beaucoup, and bon appétit. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.